Good morning. This morning we find ourselves in 2 Samuel 24 as we continue to follow the life of David. There's a little bit of background that we need to cover before the scripture reading. So, in the first part of 2 Samuel 24, God becomes angry with Israel. And so he incites David to conduct a census. Joab, David's no-nonsense general, thinks this is a foolish and dangerous idea, but David insists. Joab defers to his king and conducts a military-oriented census. So this summarizes the first third of 2 Samuel 24. Our text this morning starts in 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. You can find that text in your Bible or printed for you in your worship guide. And I'll ask that if you're able, that you would stand to honor the reading of God's word. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working in destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aaron the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aaron looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aaron went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aaron said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aaron said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes for the, of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aaron gives to the king. And Aaron said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aaron, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So David has now grown from the young shepherd boy to an old man who must consider his legacy. 
He's leaving a legacy behind, and he needs to maintain it. Imagine David sitting on his throne, reflecting upon his life. He was the youngest son of Jesse when the prophet Samuel came to anoint him. In the Bible, to anoint someone was to pour oil upon their head as a symbol of them entering into a new office. The Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word to anoint is Messiah. So when Samuel came to Bethlehem, he anointed David king of Israel. He anointed David, and David was the Messiah. At this point, Israel had been living in the land for several generations, but the country had not become united. Finally, uh, God had mercifully raised up judges, but Israel had remained in tribal factions. The people demanded a king, and God had given them Saul. But Saul had failed to rule in a godly manner, and Israel remained under constant threat of invasion, oppression, and division. David's anointing was a declaration by Yahweh that Israel's search for a king had entered into a new chapter. Yahweh had provided Israel with a Messiah to rule them. You can see David fondly recalling the initial seriousness that he took with this divine charge. The defeat of Goliath, the rout of the Philistines, the bringing of the ark into Jerusalem, the bringing of unity to the land, and the bringing of peace and rest. Yet, that peace had been too easily disrupted in David's latter years. His son Absalom had led a rebellion, quickly followed by a second insurrection. In both instances, David and his military were caught off guard and found themselves not quite organized enough to respond quickly. David had, re- David had prevailed, but he needed to secure Israel against any future military threats. To be able to do that, he was going to need a more organized military. And the first step in organizing a military is to conduct a military-oriented census to find out who could serve. You can feel the weight on Israel's long-sought king, can't you? God had given him a duty, and David had risen to that, and had protected Israel, and united God's covenant people. But the desire to secure them and his legacy against further insurrections and invasions to make sure that all of his work had not been in vain led David to the point of wanting to conduct the census. But why is this census sinful? It's not like the Ten Commandments include, thou shall not count people. And conducting a census does seem to make strategic sense. (laughs) To be honest, and this is hard to admit as a seminarian, it's not entirely clear why. Uh, The census was a foolish course of action, sure, but we don't know with complete certainty. The Old Testament never explicitly says that it's sinful to conduct a census, and 2 Samuel 24 never gives a specific reason why it was wrong. However, the Old Testament does give us some hints to help us make sense of why this was a foolish course of action. Numbers chapter 1 has the first census in the Bible, and it was actually commanded by God himself. The context of Numbers 1 is that God is king and that he is the one with the authority to command a census. Another hint comes in Exodus 30, chapter, uh, verses 11 through 16. God tells Moses that any time Israel conducts a census, that each person numbered must give an offering in order that a plague might not come upon the people. Sound a little similar to our text this morning? The reasoning in Exodus 30 is that when people are counted in a census, that they need something to remind them that their lives don't belong to the king, but belong to God. 
in the ancient Near East, then a census was considered a really serious endeavor. Joab, David's top general, even saw it as a very serious endeavor and advised against it. So David conducting the census for military purposes may reveal that the king, Israel's Messiah, was more interested in depending upon himself and upon his military might to secure Israel than upon Yahweh's faithfulness. Earlier in 1 Samuel, right before they attack a Philistine encampment, David's friend Jonathan said to a fellow soldier, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. God's faithfulness is not broken when his people face more or fewer trials. That's something that we should remember when the obstacles in our life appear too large. Most of us will not be facing down a military encampment anytime soon, but you will have to choose whether or not to trust God or to take matters into your own hand. And that appears to be exactly how David sinned with the census. He trusted in his military ability to secure Israel rather than in God's faithfulness. The fact that 2 Samuel does not contain any mention of offerings made by the people as the law commanded when the census was taken indicates that David was more interested in securing his kingdom than in trusting and obeying God. There may not have been a specific prohibition against conducting the census, but that's not what made it sinful. Sin is, is never just about rule-breaking but it's about grieving our relationship with God. God relates to his people not primarily as a judge, but as a father. And David's census grieved God because of the lack of trust that uh, David placed in God's paternal covenantal faithfulness. So regardless of why the census was wrong, in verse 10, David realizes that he sins. The text tells us that David's heart struck him. He prays to God, confessing his sin, confessing that he sinned greatly and that he acted foolishly. And he pleads with God to take away his sin. The order of events here is very telling. Earlier in 2 Samuel, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he indulged in his sin, then he went deeper into his sin by murdering Uriah and stayed there. It wasn't until Nathan the prophet came and confronted David that David repented. Here, we have something altogether different. David sins. He conducts the census. But this time, his heart strikes him. The Holy Spirit works in him, and he repents. Only then does Gad the prophet come and confront David with his sin. This is an example from the life of a sanctified sinner. Regardless of where we are in our walk with Jesus, we will sin but we will all not repent the same way or with the same eagerness. In this case, David moved to repent because he recognized his sin before he was called out on it, and he did so without offering excuses or rationalizations. It would have been so easy for him to say, God, I know I sinned, but hey, I I needed to secure Israel. It was my duty as a king. But no, David sinned, and and he recognized that that had grieved God. This is a good example of how someone who has matured in their faith will act. Rather than wait to have someone point out their sin to them, they will take the step of repentance first. Jesus works through his Holy Spirit to convict his people of their sin, so that when we sin, it becomes distasteful to us. And here, David's heart did not strike him out of the blue. 
No, rather, his confession of sin came as a result of someone who had practiced repentance enough that the deep wickedness of sin grieved him and moved him to plead for forgiveness from the even deeper love of God. The formative action of confession of sin, something we see all over the Psalms that David wrote, and even in our own liturgy here, had transformed David's heart for the better. This is a characteristic that we should all strive towards. We will all still fall into sin, but the practice of confession can and will shape us into becoming a repenting people. And you should strive to repent before someone points out your sin to you. God has given us a community who can keep us accountable and lovingly call us out on our sin, and that is for sure a blessing. Even here in 2 Samuel, Gad still confronts David with a sin, albeit after David's confession. As a church community, we should seek to become a place not only where we have hard conversations, but also a place where we can lovingly and warmly accept people when they come to confess. We should become a place where you can go to your neighbor and admit when you have sinned. And to do that, we need to be a place that not only repents quickly, but forgives quickly. Our repentance and our forgiveness never impacts just ourselves, but also the community that we are in. By taking the initiative to repent or to forgive, you help to foster and create an environment where we can be open with one another. You know, it's often been my observation in my own life and relationships that they are better off when I admit when I am wrong rather than bullheadedly wait until someone points it out to me. And that is true of our relationship with God as well and something that David understood here. Repenting quickly is a symptom of spiritual maturity because it reveals that we care for and love our relationship with God more than we love our sin. But sin has consequences, even when it is forgiven. God, through his prophet Gad, offers David three options to choose from as a consequence of his sin. Gad offers David three years of, uh, three years of famine, three months of David fleeing before his enemies, or three days of plague. All three of these would have surely sounded terrible to a king who was striving to protect and care for his people. But the selection put before David is not arbitrary either. Part of repentance is demonstrating a change of behavior. Gad is putting before David three options that get to the heart of David's original sin. By conducting the census, David had chosen to trust in himself and Israel's armies rather than in God's covenant promises. You can hear the anguish in David's voice in verse 14 as he realizes what the consequences of his sin bring. Let us not fall into the hand of the Lord. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But but let me not fall into the hand of a man. David, who had relied on himself in conducting the census, demonstrates his true repentance here by relying on the mercy of God. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for David to think to himself, Hmm, I sinned but I did just conduct this military census and our armies are pretty large. You know what? I'll repent, but I'll go with a leaving, uh, being pursued by the enemy option. Maybe we'll beat him on the battlefield. Instead, David knew that God was merciful. 
The very underlying basis of David's confession in verse 10 is that God can and does forgive. David knew that conducting the census was wrong, and that when he had to face the music, he had rather be at the mercy of Yahweh, the merciful one, than continue in that sin. So, the pestilence that God sends in 2 Samuel corresponds to the plague of Exodus 30. A census had been taken, but an offering by the people had not been made. A plague is sent by God, and 70,000 people die. It is only when the plague starts heading towards Jerusalem that God relents and ends the plague. In verse 17, David, unaware that God has relented, pleads with him to end the plague. I have sinned not my people. Please, spare them and let your justice be against only me. This, this is the third time in eight verses that David, the Messiah King that Israel has been longing and searching for, has thrown himself on the mercy of God as a result of his sin. And this time, it is because his people are dying. Israel's long-sought-for king, instead of bringing peace and rest, brought destruction and harm and death to his people. Not much of a king. One of the questions this passage forces us to wrestle with is the one that David himself asks. Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? What are we to make of it when bystanders suffer for the sin and foolishness of others? Is this just? It seems unfair that 70,000 people died because of David's foolishness. On this question, there are two important takeaways, I think. One is the severity of sin. We too quickly dismiss the utter horror that is sin and make light of it when it occurs. The brokenness of this world, this state of misery, is a divinely just response to Adam's sin and our continual sin. The question should not be, Was it fair for those people to suffer for David's sin? But do sinners deserve to live in a world better than this one? You should always keep in mind that your sin never just impacts yourself. Your actions have ramifications, and the brokenness of this world is conducive to the amplification of sin's effects. Fortunately, the second implication is far, far more hopeful. And that takeaway is that our king's decisions impact our well-being. Now, that might not sound like a good thing because David's decisions led to the death of 70,000 people. This is because David, as king, was the covenant-anointed representative of his people. God had given Israel their Messiah in order to bring peace to a sinfully broken world. We live in this broken world, but God is merciful and he will not leave us in this state. But David did mess up. David's decisions had direct consequences for his people, and those consequences were terrible. But if God's people had a good king, a righteous king, a king who was righteous in all of his ways, then we would start to see the undoing of the brokenness of the world with real healing and real justice and real peace and real blessing. So when the plague ends, the angel of the Lord is at the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite, just outside of Jerusalem. David had had to conquer Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5 and take it from the Jebusites that that had inhabited it. And apparently one of them decided to stick around and own a threshing floor. 
Now, a threshing floor was a place that you would go to filter and sort grains and wheat and stuff like that. So the prophet Gad instructs David to go to the threshing floor and construct an altar to Yahweh. And David complies. Verses 21 through 24 record the interaction between David and Aaron, where they're bartering over the price of the threshing floor. But it's not haggling for a better price, but to outdo each other in honor. Aaron wants to gift the threshing floor to his king and honor him that way. But David refuses to make a sacrifice to Yahweh that costs him nothing. David prevails in verse 24 and purchases the threshing floor to make the offering. The legitimacy of David's repentance is demonstrated here. He could have easily have gone through the motions of making an offering in a way that cost him nothing. But he knew that to truly honor God, particularly in the context of his sin, required sacrifice. Repentance always requires some sacrifice on our part, even if it's just sacrificing our pride or losing face. And it's there on Aaron's threshing floor that David makes his offering of repentance. He offers to God. And verse 25 tells us that God heard David's pleas and removed the plague from the land. The offerings that Exodus 30 required at the census have been made to God's satisfaction. It's important to note here that David's repentance was not merely confessing, admitting that he had sinned, and then stopping that he had sinned, stopping that sin, but that he had replaced his God-grieving behavior with God-honoring behavior. Repentance is about not simply stopping our sin, but living and acting in a way that honors our king. Israel's king had repented, and God had mercifully listened to his pleas. And this is how 2 Samuel ends. So where does this leave us? What was the point of you listening to me for the past 20 minutes? Uh, This does leave us with one unresolved question looming over the entire passage. If God incited David to conduct the census in verse 1, then how is it okay for God to punish David when he goes ahead and does it? One of the mysteries of our faith from the very center of our faith, lies in the midst of this passage. God is providentially sovereign over all actions, while people are free to act in accordance with their desires. James 1 tells us that God never tempts us with evil, but that people sin when they are lured and enticed by our own desires. Here in 2 Samuel 24, God is angry with Israel and uses his servant David to bring justice to the situation. He does not cause David to sin, but allows David's own desires, desires for security, for might, for maintaining his own legacy and reputation, and for building his kingdom. God allows David to give in to those desires and conduct the census. God sovereignly used David and his sin to accomplish his purpose. So regardless of how this tension is resolved, the point of this text is God's purpose, not the technical relationship between human freedom and divine sovereignty. And we should not allow this point to distract us. So what was the purpose? Well, 2 Samuel 7 records the covenant made by God to David, including the detail that it will be David's offspring that will build the temple for God, not David himself. God often works through sin to fulfill his purpose. We saw that earlier in 2 Samuel. David committed sin with Bathsheba, 
but with her he later fathered Solomon, the promised heir to Israel's throne. God had a plan, and despite David's iniquity, continued with that plan, even incorporating David's sin into it. Here in 2 Samuel 24, we see God doing that again. David sins by conducting the census, but the end result of the story is that the construction of the altar on Aaron's threshing floor. Now, many commentators believe that Jebusites, like Arana, used their threshing floor as a place of worship for their false gods. So, by having David construct an altar at that location, Yahweh is supplanting and redeeming a place that had been used for idolatry. You know, as I heard Dave's prayer and Zach's talk earlier today, and what we've been doing as a church, that's what we hope happens at the Kaligat Temple. God has done it before, and he can do it again. But even more than all that, First Chronicles 22 tells us that this location, the threshing floor, was used by Solomon to build the temple. God had made a covenantal promise to David that his son, his offspring, would build the temple. And even in the midst of David sinning and not trusting in God's faithfulness, God remained faithful to his promises. God used David's unfaithfulness to further God's faithfulness to his covenant people by overthrowing an idolatrous place of worship and setting the groundwork for his temple. That should give you pause. Even when you sin against God, he can and will use that for his glory and for his good. Don't hear me saying, let us go sin so grace may abound. Rather, That reality ought to lead us to worship even more deeply, knowing that the awful wickedness of our sin is outmatched by the sovereign grace and love of our God. But even here, as God remains faithful to his people and to his commitments, it must become very clear to us and to the people of Israel that their search for a king has truly come up empty again. Their Messiah had not saved them, but instead had sinned and brought destruction and harm upon them. David, the anointed king, had to prostrate himself before God, pleading for mercy for himself and his people because of his sin. And Israel, as a result of David's sin and the consequences, would later fall again into civil war, idolatry, and captivity. The peace and rest that Israel had under David was only temporary. But in God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 was the pledge that one of David's offspring, one of his descendants, would sit on the throne of a kingdom that would last forever. David, as Israel's first Messiah, had demonstrated clearly that God's people needed a better king than he had proved to be. They needed the promised king, the kingdom who would not end. So, fast forward 1,200 years. God's people are again oppressed by the Romans and are looking for a savior. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist shows up on the scene, preaching the gospel, and the people find themselves asking a question. Now remember, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and so anointed one means Messiah. The New Testament, written in Greek, translates Messiah as Christ. The people were asking the question, is John the Christ? John quickly dismisses the speculation, but tells them the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. And Luke tells us that the Christ is Jesus. 
Shortly thereafter, Jesus is baptized by John and anointed by God the Father, but not with oil, not like David was, but with the Holy Spirit. Jesus then goes straight into the wilderness, and while there, he is tempted by the devil. At one point, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says to him, To you I will give the authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will be yours. So remember David, sitting on his throne, recalling the civil wars, Absalom's insurrection, contemplating the census. David had the kingdom. He had a kingdom. But the fear of losing it drove him to take matters into his own hand and reject trust in Yahweh's promises. And in that moment, David definitively showed that God's people needed a better king, a better Messiah. Now here is Jesus, looking at all the kingdoms of the world, being offered to him simply, without pain, without suffering, without the cross. But the difference between the first Messiah, David, and the Christ, is that when faced with that choice, Jesus chose to trust his Father. In Jesus as the King, our King, endured the pain of the cross for the joy that was set before him. And it was through his suffering on the cross that he defeated Satan, that the brokenness of the world began to be reversed, and the kingdom with true peace and true rest was finally established. See, Jesus flips the script that David had. David pled for God to only punish him, not his people, for his sin. But Jesus, the totally innocent one, cried out on the cross for God to forgive his murderers. Jesus pled that the sins of the people, of his people, of his church, be placed upon him. The offerings that Exodus 30 required to be made when a census was conducted the offerings that David did not make, pointed to the final offering that Christ made on the cross. Those offerings were designed to remind people that their lives were not their own. When he conducted the census, David disobeyed and did not have his people make those offerings. But on the other hand, when Jesus came, he didn't come so people would make offerings for their lives. He came to be the offering for their lives, for our lives. Christ came to, to pay for our sin, to remind us that we belong to him. So as we look for a king to serve, to worship, as we look to the different things, our strengths, our desires, it is better to trust in our God, our Father, because he has given us a good king, a king who cares for us, and a king who offered himself up for us so that our lives might belong to him. So let's pray to him now in gratefulness. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our King. We thank you that he has come, that he died and rose again so that we might live. I pray that in his kingdom, that his people, that we would live in a way that honors you, that honors him, that your Holy Spirit would transform us, transform our hearts to be people who repent quickly, that confess our sins, that move to look like Jesus, who will not be stubborn when our pride is on the line. God, we thank you that your kingdom will prevail and the gates of hell have no power against it. We pray that as you extend your kingdom here in Rockwall, in Dallas, 
and Rajamundri and Calcutta, the more people will come to know your son, that they will worship him as your, as their king, that your Holy Spirit will prick their hearts, will transform their culture, and will overthrow their idolatrous temples. God, we love you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.